Father, as we now prepare our own hearts to come to Your Word, we thank You for Your Word, and we remember that Your Word is breathed out by Your Spirit through the prophets, that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that we, as Your people, may be equipped for every good work. Oh God, please use Your Word to grow us in Christ's likeness. Please feed us with Your Word. Nourish us with Your Word. Show us our need for You. Show us our need for Your grace. And teach us, Lord. Teach us to walk in Your ways and to glorify You and enjoy You forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of 1 Samuel. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles out in the foyer that are available for you. If you don't have a Bible at home, we would love for you to just take one of those Bibles home with you today. Uh, We are more than happy to to put that in your hands if you need a Bible. They're out on the counter in the foyer. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 11 to 26. This will be in the second chapter of 1 Samuel as we continue breezing through this book compared to our John study, right? You know, one of the most difficult things about living in a country like ours, and when I say a country like ours, I mean a country that is, by all appearances, clearly under God's judgment, is the fact that we see corruption everywhere we look. We see corruption everywhere we look. Let me explain what I mean when I say that. I mean that the Bible clearly demonstrates that God created the world, the universe, to be orderly. And when you look at the universe, that becomes very apparent because all the stars and all the planets aren't just like randomly floating out there, but they are going around in certain patterns. Everything in creation was created to be orderly, and so... Uh, That extends not only to things that we see in creation, but it extends to humanity. We're, We're to be orderly as well. And so to that end, God has ordained that there would be certain positions in creation and in humanity uh, that would have a degree of authority over a specific realm of the created order. For example, uh, God has ordained that children should honor their parents. Uh, why, does he, why does He instruct us to do that? First of all, it's because children are under the authority. There's, there's the, the, the principle there. They're under the authority of their parents. But further, the Bible reveals that husbands are to be the spiritual leaders of their homes, of their households. Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians eleven thirteen. He says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, his wife that is, and God is the head of Christ. So this is more or less kind of a, a chain of command that's supposed to exist within the home. And of course, Christ reigns supreme over, uh, over all, but under Him, the husband is to be the, the, the top spiritual authority in the home. We also know that God ordains governments. 
Paul says in Romans 13, uh, verse 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And he goes on to say in in verse 4 that the governing authorities are designed to be a minister of God to you for good. That's what the government is supposed to be. Now, over the last three years, we have studied that passage, uh, and, and we've, we've seen that the government only has the authority to enforce laws that are in line with God's moral law, but that the government never has the right to demand that we break God's moral law. And the government also never has the right to prohibit us from doing what God commands, such as gathering together to worship on the Lord's day. The government never has the authority to do that because Christ is head of the church. Uh, But that brings us to the next point. Uh, God has ordained authority within the church. Uh, As the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689 states, Uh, quote, a local church that is gathered and organized according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members. The officers appointed by Christ are overseers, uh, also gets translated as uh, elders or pastors in the New Testament. Uh, The officers appointed by Christ are overseers or elders or deacons. They should be chosen and set apart by the church that is called and gathered in this way. They should be chosen and set apart for the specific purpose of administering ordinances and carrying out other powers or duties that Christ entrusts them with or calls them to. This will continue to the end of the world. In other words, the church has a certain structure. There's there's an order to it. There are overseers or elders, there are deacons, and then there are members. Uh, And one of the texts from which we derive this principle is Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where Paul says to the elders at Ephesus, as he's departing from them, he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So, these are the three main spheres. These are the three main um, magistrates, if you will, the main areas where we see that God has ordained authority. Government, church, and home. Government, the family, and, and church. And yet, as you look out at our culture today, if you look across the cultural landscape, you see corruption, a high degree of corruption in each one of these groups, each one of these areas. You see politicians who have been completely, utterly corrupted by lobbyists and special interest groups. And while our system was designed to weed out corrupt politicians and political leaders by voting them out instead of having to kill them to get them out, if not impeaching them before the completion of their term. It's clear that voting in, uh, voting in a new candidate um, is, is really just voting in an entirely new set of problems. That's one of the problems that we face in our elections today. Uh, in the year or so since COVID restrictions really died down, it's become public knowledge that the government was actually working with social media companies to censor anyone who spoke the truth. Uh, to censor anyone who spoke out against uh, what the government was trying to accomplish. Anyone who dared to defy the narrative. Our government is just corrupt from top to bottom right now. 
uh, in the family institution. We see the rate of fatherlessness has just skyrocketed in the past 20 years. Right now, over 40% of children are being born to unmarried parents. 40% of kids. That's almost half of the kids being born today have parents who aren't even married. The family institution as a whole has been under fire for over 50 years now, and we're finally seeing the foundations really starting to crumble. Uh, the most prominent progressive movement in the country, if not the world right now, literally stated on their website at one point that they were out to destroy the traditional nuclear family. And to be honest, the modern progressive movement has actually been very successful at this mission. The t- statistics support the fact that they have done what they set out to do. There is corruption not only in government, but there is corruption in the family institution. And what about the church? Have we seen any corruption in the church? Not speaking of one individual church, but just the church overall in America. Of course we have. How many pastors per year are resigning and making headlines because of moral failure of one type or another? How many pastors get their walking papers because they were spiritually abusive either to the staff members or to the congregation? I mean, that's, that's actually what the issue was that shut down the megachurch that we used to have here in Seattle was a pastor who was spiritually abusive. There is corruption everywhere you look. And it's really easy when there's corruption everywhere, it's very easy for us to just become cynical, for us to become jaded, and to not even let it affect us anymore, so that we don't even flinch when we see it. And one of the reasons that I've wanted to do a study of First and Second Samuel for a couple of years now is because their society was also filled with corruption in every area. But we know that there is nothing new under the sun. So, What did God do about it then? And what can God do about the corruption that we see now? So in the passage that we come to today, we're going to see how corrupt Israel was. And given that Israel had a theocracy, again, that's not to be confused with theonomy. Don't let anybody tell you that those two things are the same things. They are completely different. But given that they had a theocracy, we should understand that if there was corruption in the tabernacle, There would be corruption absolutely everywhere. So what does our country have in common with ancient Israel during the the time here in the book, which is the time of the judges? Uh, Probably more than we'd like to admit, but the main thing is that God is not feared, God is not honored or loved or obeyed by those who are in positions of authority. So what would we expect? Would we expect righteousness? Would we expect someone to be, most people to be morally upright? Of course not. The fact is we should expect to see corruption in any place where God is not feared, honored, loved, and obeyed. We should expect corruption, but that doesn't mean that we should tolerate it. And it doesn't mean that we should become so jaded and so cynical that we just don't even flinch when we see it anymore. God didn't tolerate it. God was doing something about it. And the way to see in our, in our text, uh, the way to see what God is doing is to keep one eye on Samuel. 
But Samuel is only a foreshadow of Christ, and thus to see what God is doing about the sin and the corruption that's so prevalent in the world today, we have to keep our eyes on Christ, who is God's answer to all the sin and corruption that we see in the world. And that's the point of our passage today. Jesus and His Gospel are God's answer, His solution to all of the sin and corruption that we see in the world. Now, in our study of 1 Samuel, we've been introduced to Elkanah and Hannah, uh, who, of course, were the parents of Hannah or of, uh, of Samuel. At the end of chapter 1, we saw that they brought him to the tabernacle in Shiloh, uh, and they left him with, uh, with Eli, who was the priest at the tabernacle, to serve and minister as a priest for the rest of his days. And we saw that Hannah, uh, at the beginning of chapter 2, she, she wrote a, a beautiful song to commemorate the moment when she left Samuel Uh, in Shiloh. But the essence of her song, the the gist of it, was that God is sovereign and God takes the sin and the corruption that's going on in the world very seriously and He will deal with all of it justly. All the while proceeding in faithfulness to His people, plans, and promises. So the passage that we come to today begins with the verse that just follows immediately after Hannah's song, where we see what happened to Samuel after he was left in Eli's care at the tabernacle in Shiloh. We start with verse 11, which says, Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now this verse makes it very clear that Hannah just didn't go alone to drop Samuel off at the tabernacle in Shiloh, but that Elkanah, her husband, had gone with her. And and so Elkanah, I think he can be commended for having never once, uh, at least in our our written testimony, never once complained, never once objected uh, to Hannah being faithful to the vow that she had made unto the Lord, that if he would open her womb and allow her to have a child, that her child would take the Nazarite vow and serve the Lord uh, all of his days. Uh, He should also be commended for regularly bringing his family to Shiloh, to the tabernacle for worship as God had instructed. Uh, But this time, Uh, This time, as we know, they returned home with one fewer person than they had initially gone there with. Samuel was to remain in Shiloh. And what did he do there? Well, the last verse of chapter 1 told us that he worshipped there, but here uh, we see that it's, it's not just that he's worshipping there, he's ministering there. You might think that at just three years of age, this is kind of crazy if you think about it, that Eli would just feel flustered, what we'll see in our text today, that he's an old man. Uh, he, he's an old man, and uh, that's a very difficult way to raise young children. So you might think that he would feel flustered or that he would feel overwhelmed at this new responsibility of taking care of uh, a young child, but there isn't a single indication anywhere in the text uh, that he felt that way. That it was anything less than a joy for him to disciple, mentor Samuel. He didn't leave Samuel in the care of somebody else. Instead, we see that Samuel learned to minister there in Shiloh. And to whom did he minister? What does the text tell us? 
We should see that he didn't minister to Eli. It doesn't even tell us that he ministered to the people of Israel or to people who came to worship in Shiloh, although he certainly did do that. What we should see was that his ministry to the people was secondary. It was secondary to his ministry to the Lord, to Yahweh. And that's the way that everyone should minister. Me and you alike. We believe in the priesthood of all believers, right? That's one of the principles of the Protestant Reformation that we, uh, that we recover and that, that recovered and, and that we still affirm. The priesthood of all believers. That's how everyone should minister. Your highest priority in life should be your walk with the Lord. Ministering to the Lord. Yes, Samuel also ministered to the people, but that was an overflow of his first priority of his ministry to Yahweh. His ministry to Yahweh was first and foremost for God's good pleasure and for God's glory. If a three-year-old can minister in this way to the Lord, first and foremost, can you? Yeah, of course you can. Should you? Yes, absolutely. Will you? Will you? Paul says to the Corinthians, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, is what he wrote to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. And so at just three years of age, Samuel began taking on some of these responsibilities of a priest in the tabernacle under Eli's discipleship and, and supervision. Now, we might not even begin to understand what an incredible gift of grace Samuel truly was, because he's doing what a priest was actually supposed to do. So, so to us, it might look like, okay, so, so he's doing these things. So what? That's what priests are supposed to do. I imagine there were plenty of uh, Aaron's sons that, uh, that were trained up from the moment they could walk to start ministering in the tabernacle. Okay. That's true. It's only when we see what the priests who were already in place were in the practice of doing that we see what a gift of grace Samuel is. And that is when we get introduced to the sons of Eli and when we see what they have been doing in their service in the tabernacle, that's when we start to really get an understanding of what a precious gift of grace Samuel was to God's people. Friends, God is always at work behind the scenes. He's always doing a million things, and we might catch on to five of them. We might catch on to ten of them if we're really, really observant. God is always at work behind the scenes. He never stops working to accomplish and fulfill all of His plans, all of His purposes, all of them. There is never a time when He just throws up His hands and says, oh, these these stiff-necked, people, these, these stubborn, arrogant Americans. I, I've had enough. Forget about the things that I intended to do. And who among us can deny that that is some really good news, that God never does that? Because if God were capable of giving up on a person, listen, I'll tell you first and foremost, He would have given up on somebody like me. He would have given up on all of us a long time ago. So as we continue and as, as we're, we're introduced to these men known as the sons of Eli, uh, will come to understand the desperate need for God's 
hand to be working behind the scenes to raise somebody up that the people of Israel would have felt at this time. Let's continue in verses 12 to 17. We read, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priests with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, we, they, they must surely burn the fat first and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For the men despised the offering of the Lord. Now we were introduced to these men, Phineas and Hophni, back at the beginning of chapter 1. But really the beginning of chapter 1 didn't tell us much or of anything about them. But right out of the gate here, we're told that these were worthless men. Now we've seen that this term worthless men, it's been used throughout the book of Judges. Uh, but the, the literal translation of that, uh, of that phrase, worthless men, uh, is sons of Belial. Sons of Belial. Uh, back in chapter 1, we saw that Eli had mistaken Hannah for a woman who had you know, probably had too much to drink before she came into the tabernacle, and she had defended uh, herself before him saying, do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman. Or again, more literally translated, as a daughter of Belial. So who is this Belial character? Well, that's why I think they've translated it as, uh, as uh, worthless men or worthless woman. Who is this Belial character? Well, I'll say this. The, the Hebrew only has uh, negative, negative connotations and implications whenever we see this title, this name. It's always associated with, with death with destruction, with, uh, with wickedness and rebelliousness and ungodliness. Uh, we're all familiar with Paul's instruction in 2 Corinthians 6.14, which says, Do not be bound together or unequally yoked. That's the more commonly known phrase. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? But then Paul follows that up in the next verse, verse 15, writing this, Or what harmony has Christ with Belial. The idea there, I believe, is that Belial is another name for Satan. And so back at the end of the book of Judges, we saw this, this same term that got translated worthless men, but it, it was sons of Belial. We saw this term used of the gang of men that, uh, that raped and murdered the Levites' concubine. Uh, this is not a term that you want to have applied to you. This is not a term that we should just kind of glaze over, but it should cause us to be taken back a little bit because it's a very serious accusation. And it's obviously used of these two men because we're told that they are evil. They're, they're evil. They, 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 they desire nothing to do with the Lord. They're, they're a stark contrast to Samuel. As we're told, 
they did not know the Lord. There's not a worse thing that can be said of any single individual person. That they do not know the Lord. That should cause anybody in their right mind, anybody with just a grain of understanding, to tremble. And if, if that's true of just your, your average person, how much more shocking is it? How much more revolting is it when that term is used of men who are supposed to be serving the Lord in the tabernacle? We have to understand that that is the worst thing that a person can be known as. How is it possible that they did not even know Him? How are they supposed to serve Him if they do not even know Him? They did not know the Lord. And this should actually remind us of what Hannah sang in her song. Back in verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3. She said this, she said, For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with Him actions are weighed. These two men are sons of Belial. They did not know Yahweh, but Yahweh knew about them. He knew their ways. He knew knew their deeds. He was perfectly aware of what was going on with these two men who were representing Him before the people. And here's what I'm afraid of. Here's what I fear, friends, is that I fear that you and I have seen so much corruption in society at large, and we've seen actually so much corruption in the American church and the home, not to mention, and the government, that information like this, when it's used to describe a leader, a person that God has ordained to leadership, just doesn't even cause us to be taken back or to flinch or to be surprised at their actions. You and I should be horrified to read a verse that refers to these tabernacle priests essentially as sons of Satan. We've seen this kind of thing in our society so many times that it's really easy for us to just see it here in our text and kind of roll our eyes and, well, it figures. I mean, corruption uh, is what happens in, in positions like that. No, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be that way. Don't lower your expectations for a position of authority that way. Because what we're supposed to see is that these two priests in the tabernacle are really committing the height of wickedness. It should cause us to be frightened for for ourselves. If it can happen to them, could it happen to me? It should cause us to be taken back and shocked. It should cause us to be angry even. We read about how instead of ministering to the Lord, who are they ministering to? Themselves. And they did so by taking advantage of the people of Israel. We know that the priests were to be uh, compensated, that part of the sacrifice was for them. They were to be taken care of and have certain benefits and privileges from their work Uh, on the Lord's behalf. We read of those provisions in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But what we see happening here in 1 Samuel chapter 2 was not supposed to be part of the priest's provision or compensation. So where did it come from? It came from them. Uh, We're told that it was the custom. So, So let's be sure that we understand that they are 
not following God's instructions at all. They, they have completely tossed God's instructions aside. Now, let me be clear about something. The only reason that somebody casts God's instructions aside is because they consider themselves wiser or better than God. And so to cast God's instructions aside is the highest insult to God. These two men are not only greedy, they are not only self-serving, but we see that they're also lazy. They're not even the ones who go with the three-pronged fork and, and put it in the, the, pal- the cauldron or the pot uh, for themselves. They have a servant who goes and does it for them, doing their bidding on their behalf. Is that servant any less guilty since he was just doing their bidding? Of course not. He was complicit. He, he would have to, have to answer to the Lord as well. In fact, we, we see in verse 16 that this servant would take under the threat of force if the people making the sacrifices objected or didn't comply. And that once again brings us back to Hannah's song. Remember the line, which I said would be the theme that would play out throughout. It would kind of be the theme of First and Second Samuel. She's saying in verse 9, Not by might shall a man prevail. Keep that in mind as you consider what these priests are doing. Not by might shall a man prevail. Meanwhile, their servant is threatening force if the people don't comply. And so it's no wonder then that when we read verse 17... Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. The offering of the Lord was the sacrifice, the the provision that God had made for their forgiveness. And they despised it. What we should see is that these are the types of men that Hannah's song was warning against. She, she was singing about people like, like these guys and warning them that the day of God's judgment is coming. That one day, God will make all things right. Every sin will be justly punished, either by the person or by His Son. What we need to understand is that the reason these men despised the offering of the Lord is because they despised God himself. They despised him, they despised his ways, and so of course they hated what was consecrated unto him. But but here's the crazy part. If you think that's bad, we haven't even gotten to the worst thing that they were doing. We're going to. uh, When we come back to them in just a few minutes, we'll see the greatness of their perversity. But for now, we're just to see that these sons of Eli were actually sons of Belial. Sons of wickedness. Sons of Satan. I want us to consider what kind of an effect that kind of corruption in the tabernacle would have on the spiritual state of Israel. When the religious leaders in a nation are corrupt, what kind of an influence does that have on society at large? If the leaders who are supposed to, in one sense, represent God, cannot be trusted, if they are as corrupt as any earthly king or politician, the disrespect and the enmity that the people feel toward those religious figureheads 
won't end with them. No, it will extend unto God. The priest represents God in this situation in a certain sense, and thus the animosity that they feel toward these men, the resentment that they would feel toward these men, they would also be inclined to have toward God. One commentator wisely notes, he says, quote, Men of corrupt lives at the head of religion who are shameless in their sin have a lowering effect on the moral life of the whole community. End quote. And this is why James warns us in James chapter 3, verse 1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Why is a pastor or why is a religious leader judged more strictly? It's because there's a sense in which a religious leader represents God. And, and so with that in mind, what a, tragedy it is, what a tragedy it is to live in a time when it's just common to see religious figureheads who minister primarily for the sake of personal profit and personal gain. That's why we take such a strong stance against the, the prosperity gospel, which is a false gospel. It's not good news. It's terrible news. Because they're charlatans who are in it for themselves. And so they measure their success not by their faithfulness to God's Word being preached or by, by their faithfulness to preaching the full counsel of God in season and out of season. No, they measure their success by the number of zeros in their bank accounts. And yes, that should make us mad. Yes, that should cause us to be completely disgusted. And this is why we take a strong stance against churches that are using worldly methods and, and means that God has not given us to draw more people to their church and to increase the giving rather than making the spiritual growth and the health of the church their priority. We've seen time and time again that these are, are so often the kinds of leaders who end up disqualifying themselves due to moral failures. If nothing else, their sin and their fall from ministry, the bigger their platform, the greater their fall. The more public their fall. The more people get wounded because they've, they've just often built themselves these huge platforms to speak from. And it dishonors God. It dishonors God. And any religious figure should fear nothing greater than that. That fear should govern the way that he pastors. And it's a reminder. It's true that God only has very flawed under-shepherds. If you look at my life closely enough, I'm a sinner just as bad as anybody else. I'm a, I'm a terrible sinner. Apart from God's grace, I have no hope. But the flaws of the under-shepherds are no excuse for such unrighteousness that it can only be described as that their actions can only be described as despising what belongs to God. That is to say, there's no excuse for church leaders. Yes, they're sinful. Okay, we get that. But there's no excuse for them to be self-serving. Samuel, for example, he, he wasn't perfect. He's only a foreshadow of a Savior. He himself can't save anyone. He had a sin nature just like the rest of us, but his heart was set on serving and glorifying God. His priorities 
were straight. And that's what makes the difference between under-shepherds who are pleasing unto God, even though they are sinners, and under-shepherds who are dishonoring to God. But make no mistake about it, friends, this doesn't only apply to church leaders. It's not just for, for people like myself. No, it's a reminder that anytime we do anything for the sake of self instead of for the glory of God, we need to repent. Listen, there are people out there who will never go to church, and you, in a sense, in a sense, will represent God to them. If they know that you go to church, if they know that you're a Christian, there's a sense in which they will watch your life. They're not going to read the Bible, they're going to read you. They want to see what you do. They want to see what you value. They want to see what your priorities are. And so, this applies to all of us. All of us need to be living our lives with the right priorities. Whatever we do for the Lord must be done with pure motives because that is what God cares about. If you're living your life with pure motives and living your life for the glory of God and someone sees a sin in your life, they're going to see a sin in anybody's life. But if they see one in your life, but your priorities are straight and you're trying to honor and glorify the Lord in your life, He's still pleased with you. If somebody finds a flaw in you, that's okay. That's normal. Actually, that would be good because then you can ask them, really, what standard are you using to identify this flaw within me? Is it just your opinion or is there something objectively wrong? See, the motivation of Eli's sons is clearly off. Let that not be said of our service to the Lord. The good news is that while this thing is going on, and will probably go on until the end of the age, until Christ returns, God is nevertheless always working to raise up faithful leaders who will minister with pure motives. Let's continue, verses 18 to 21. We go back to Samuel here. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. And his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she dedicated to the Lord. And they went to their home. The Lord visited Hannah. And she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. So you see that there's a contrast here. The author is kind of going back and forth. Samuel, the sons of Eli. Samuel, the sons of Eli. There's a contrast going on. So we're supposed to see how incredibly different the son of Hannah was from the sons of Eli, the sons of Belial. Uh, Phineas and Hophni did not do things God's way, but little Samuel is described as wearing an ephod, uh, which is what the priests were instructed to wear back in Exodus chapter 28. So while the sons of Eli were ministering in darkness and casting aside God's instructions as if they were never going to be held accountable for their actions, Samuel continues ministering before the Lord in the ways that God has instructed and prescribed. Now it seems, as we read this, it seems that time is kind of elapsing. 
Uh, earlier we were told that Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest, and now there's no mention of Eli in our text at all, being there to, uh, to supervise him. Uh, add to that the fact that we're told that his mother, that Hannah, would uh, bring him a new robe every year. Uh, and it seems clear that the author here is kind of hitting the fast-forward button, uh, so to speak. We're, we're, we're transgressing, we're, we're, we're tra- traveling through time a little bit, going from when he's three to who knows exactly how old, but we're, we're moving through time here. The annual pilgrimages that Elkanah and his uh, family would bring uh, would go on to worship Yahweh and Shiloh. They were still going on regularly. In fact, they, they made a habit of it. They, they, they did it probably with a great sense of anticipation and joy because that was when they got to see Samuel. We can imagine the great sense of anticipation that Hannah would have had in the weeks and months leading up to this time when they would go to Shiloh to worship the Lord because she would be busy uh, trying to figure out how big Samuel would be this year. And she's making him robes that will fit him. Uh, as he grows progressively larger every year. Now, we don't know for certain, but it seems as though Elkanah and Hannah were probably spared from being ministered to, for lack of better words, by the sons of Eli. Uh, Their times of worship down in Shiloh for for Elkanah and Hannah, they were joyful. They were a joyful and and, and blessed contrast to the wickedness of Phinehas and Hophni. Uh, that they were guilty of. Eli would pray over them every year that God would give them more children to replace the one that they had devoted unto the Lord. Of course, that's a reference to Samuel. And we see that this prayer was eventually wonderfully answered as Hannah gave birth to three sons and two daughters. So that means that by the time we reach the end of this passage, at least five years have passed. That make sense? Probably six. Uh, you know, I, I imagine that you know there were there were some some breaks in between there. But we've fast-forwarded several years here. Uh, but with that much said, uh, this is all that we ever learn about Elkanah and Hannah. They kind of, after this, they kind of ride off into the sunset and we don't hear anything about them again. Uh, we can assume, I think rightly assume, uh, that they would continue to make that journey to Shiloh every year for the rest of their lives. But meanwhile, we're told that Samuel grew before the Lord. Uh, More literally translated, this would say that he grew with Yahweh. He grew with God. And of course, this is God's will. This is God's desire for, for all of his people. It's his desire for you. It's his desire for me, that, that we would grow with God. And how do we do that? It's actually not that difficult. There, there's nothing. There, there's no magical formula or anything. Uh, we we do that by availing ourselves to what we refer to as the ordinary means of grace with the right motives. Uh, the ordinary means of grace being prayer, uh, the sacraments, uh, gathering as a church, praying, hearing the word of God preached. These are the things that God has ordained that would cause us to grow with Him. That's how it works. That's how we grow with the Lord. It's really not complicated. Yeah, it takes some commitment. Anything in life takes commitment. Learning your your times tables takes some commitment. Everything takes a little bit of commitment. Yes, it does take some commitment to grow with the Lord. It requires commitment from us, but it's not overly complicated. But at this point, we should be wondering if Samuel 
is ever going to do something about his sons? Why hasn't he done anything to stop the wickedness of his sons? Does, does he even know how wicked his sons are? And if he does know, does he even care that his sons are referred to as sons of Belial? These questions are answered in uh, the text as we continue. Let's look at verses 22 to 25. It says, Now Eli was very old. And he's got this young boy. Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all of Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. So here we're told that the rumors of the wickedness of his sons had reached Eli's ear, but we're also told that the wickedness of his sons was actually far greater than we had previously known or suspected. They were either raping or sexually assaulting or exploiting any woman who came to serve at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Talk about selfishness. That is as selfish as it gets. And Eli had heard all about it. I can't even begin to imagine the kind of grief that must have filled his heart. That that must have caused him to hear those reports from people. How when they would come to him and say, do you know what your sons are doing? How his eyes would well up with tears and his heart would well up with fear of the Lord and what God would do to them as a result of their sin. But the problem is, as we're told, that Eli was very old. We should keep this in mind as we begin to wonder why he hasn't done anything about the situation with his sons. But eventually he, he does go to them to address them about their wicked ways. He asks them point blank, why do you do such things? In other words, he's calling them to give an account for themselves, to examine themselves, to consider the impurity of their motives. But he doesn't stop there. He describes their actions as evil. And he lets them know that he knows about it. Because people are telling him about it. And there's no indication here that these sons even feel a grain of shame as their father says, I know what you're doing. They are just so far away from God. That's what we're supposed to see here. They, they couldn't be further. These are the most godless men that you could find in any culture. And here they are in this position, serving themselves instead of serving the Lord. But Eli, as he confronts them here, he, he doesn't pull any punches. We, get, we have to give him credit for that. Third, he says, "...the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating." They're not abusing and taking advantage of just anyone. They are abusing and taking advantage of the people that Yahweh has, has already said belong to Him. He's, a, 
They're, they're taking advantage of the Lord's people. Fourth, he presses them on the seriousness of their situation, telling them, if one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? In other words, God has provided this, this system of ritualistic cleansing for the forgiveness of sins, but they had corrupted that system. They had despised the means that God had provided. And so what other means was there that would be available to them that they didn't despise? There was nothing. There was nothing. That's the question, by the way, for the skeptic and the unbeliever today as well. A well-known conservative outlet posted on social media this week a question. The question being, what is the most important question in life? And I'd say that the, the answer to that is something along these lines. The most important question in life is, what can I do to be made right? What can I do to be reconciled to? What, what can I do to be forgiven by a God who must punish every sin? There's no other question that hangs... Eternity in the balance, like that question. And the answer is, you must repent and believe in the promised seed of the woman back in Genesis 3.15, who would of course be the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore the penalty of sin for all who believe on Him. But what if a person has decided that they absolutely hate the Lord Jesus? What hope is there for them then? Jesus and His Gospel are God's answer to all the sin and the corruption in the world. And so if a person despises Jesus, there's no mercy or grace available to them. Just like in this case, they have despised the offering to the Lord. And so what means is there of them receiving forgiveness? The only hope that any of us have is that God would show us mercy and save us from His own wrath, which He does by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the only way He's ever saved anyone. Sadly, Eli's rebuke is all for, for nothing. It's ultimately ineffective. And yes, he should have done something right then and there. Yes, he should have replaced them right then and there, but ultimately he does nothing here but rebuke them. What a shame that he waited so long to do it. It's not that they haven't been doing this for years. They clearly have been. This kind of stuff just doesn't appear out of nowhere. There's kind of a progression I'll test God. I'll tempt God and I'll break this law. I'll tempt God and I'll cast aside this instruction. Before you know it, they're doing what these guys are doing. So there's been a progression, but what a shame that Eli waited so long to rebuke them and to warn them. And that reminds us that the failure to discipline our children has disastrous consequences. Proverbs 13.24 says, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Now that's not an argument for child abuse, as some critics will often claim. Rather, it underscores the fact that parental love must discipline. And Hebrews reminds us that if you belong to God, what does He do? He disciplines you. He scourges every son He receives. 
but not out of wrath and not out of malice, but out of a love that says, my child, you can't do this. This is not good for you. This doesn't honor me and and this is going to only harm you. For their part, we're told that his sons would not listen to the voice of their father. And we're told that the reason that they rejected his rebuke is because the Lord wanted to put them to death. Now that makes it sound as if God is the one who wants to just put them to death and he's never given them a chance to repent or to, to make things right. No, that's not to say that they didn't bear some responsibility. They, of course, did. They had all the responsibility in the world. But the point is that God was so outraged at their sin that he hardened their hearts so that they couldn't repent and they wouldn't repent. But only after they had hardened their own hearts toward God. Richard Phillips says this, he says, quote, the apostasy of these two sons went hand in hand with the Lord's giving them over for destruction, end quote. They were at the point where they were beyond repentance, beyond reconciliation. They were the ones who had chosen to harden their own hearts, and God had given them over to their choices. And that's the danger of playing with sin. That's the danger of saying, Well, I'm not going to believe now. I'm not going to obey now, but maybe someday. Someday, maybe I will. You know what? It it would be a really good idea if I'll wait until my deathbed. Then I'll, you know, I'll say the prayer. As if it's going to be easier then than it is right now. No. When we're told, seek the Lord while He may be found, the implication is that there may come a time when it'll be too late. So we must act now with urgency because when we hear the gospel and we put it off, that only serves to harden our hearts. It's not going to be easier someday. Right now is the time to get right with God. Right now is the time to repent and to believe. Eli doesn't seem like he was as corrupt as his sons, but what's clear is that he didn't have the strength or the spine, to be Israel's spiritual leader. But the passage ends with a statement that God would continue to raise a godly leader up. Let's look at verse 26. It says, Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor, both with the Lord and with men. Unlike the sons of Eli... Samuel not only pleased the Lord, but he had a good reputation among men. Corruption was reigning in Israel, but corruption would not prevail. God was raising up a leader who feared, honored, loved, and obeyed the Lord. That's the kind of leader that Israel needed. To see what God was doing here, we need to be keeping our eyes on Samuel. But remember, Samuel's only a, a foreshadow of the solution to sin that God would ultimately provide by sending His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in order to see what God is doing about corruption and sin in the world today, we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. Because Jesus and His Gospel are God's answer to all of the sin and corruption in the world. Where Christ is not feared, honored, loved, and obeyed, corruption will appear, at least for a season, to prevail. But here's Christ's promise. 
I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. How does he do that? How does he build his church? Through the preaching of the gospel. And so if it appears that corruption is prevailing as it appears to be in our age, the answer is, first of all, keep our priorities straight. Keep our walk with the Lord straight. Make Him our first priority, first and foremost. But secondly, preach the good news to the lost. Preach the good news to the lost. We don't just want to see behavior modification. We don't want to see just behavior change. We want to see hearts changed. And praise be to God. He's in the business of heart changing. Of changing hearts and leading His people to walk in His ways to the glory of His name. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess to You that the sin in our own lives is great. And were it not for Christ, the sin in our lives would prevail. Just like the sin in Israel appeared to be prevailing. But we thank You, O Lord, that behind the scenes You are working to accomplish Your purposes. And part of Your purposes was to call a people out of the darkness and into Your marvelous light. We thank You that we are recipients of Your grace in Christ Jesus. And we thank You that You have spared us from Your holy and righteous wrath by putting our sin on Jesus and taking His righteousness and putting it on us. Oh Lord, we can only marvel at Your goodness and Your graciousness and Your mercy. We ask, Lord, that You would help us to keep our priorities straight. That when we put something above You, Lord, we, we ask for Your discipline. Not only so that we may know that we are Your children, but so that we may turn from the things that displease and dishonor You. Teach us, O Lord, to walk in Your ways. Teach us not to cast your instructions aside, but to live by the light of them in order that Christ would be glorified in our lives. Our desire, our calling, is to glorify you and enjoy you forever and to be salt and light in this world. Oh Lord, we cannot do it apart from you working within us. So teach us, strengthen us, edify us, and conform us to the image of Christ for the glory of His name. It's in His name we pray. Amen.